Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, I have Bob Wheeler with us. So welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Grateful to have you on. So can you uh, kick us off and tell us a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure. So uh, by day, I'm a CPA. Um, I have also written a book, The Money Nerve, um, and I've created an online course. I teach workshops, and then I'm also the CFO at the uh, world-famous comedy store. Yes, that's awesome. Um, so uh, one of the first questions that I like to typically ask is, how, like, what were you doing before you became, because I'm assuming CPA was the first thing that, that you started doing. So, like, what was, uh, what were you doing before that that led you to become a CPA? So, I actually, when I went to school, I wanted to be a lawyer uh, from, like, early on. I, I thought that would be amazing. And then I met a few and uh, decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I actually never really wanted to be a CPA, but I kept making A's in school and I was taking accounting classes just to help my grade point. And uh, it was just an easy A and then through college, same thing. And then about a year away from graduating, I thought, look, I have all these accounting grades and credits. Let's, let's go be a CPA. Why not? <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So do you mostly do like, uh, I mean, obviously you do for the uh, comedy store, but is it mostly like small businesses and you, it's like your own practice? Yeah. So I started out working for somebody for 10 years, realized I was never going to be a partner and started my own company. And I've built that up to over a thousand clients. I brought in a partner last year. We've got three CPAs and I mostly work with entertainment and, uh, and basically uh, a lot of my tax sessions turned into therapy sessions, which got me interested in, in the emotional component because uh, they seem to go hand in hand. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about the book. I want to talk about it, the inside, obviously, but before that, what was the process like to write it? Because a lot of our listeners are aspiring authors. Um, so yeah, what was that like for you to, to write the book? So what I did originally, because sometimes my brain goes faster than my hands. Um, writing it down didn't seem the best way to do, uh, go about it. So what I did was I sat down with a friend and basically started articulating all my different ideas. And we just had conversation after conversation after conversation. And we just took and uh, transcribed everything from the recordings to paper. And then I worked with an editor and we just started moving things around. But for me, it was just, easier to just like have a, a brain dump and just spit everything out yeah. and then worry about working out, getting it all organized. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think that's what holds a lot of people back is they try to perfect the first draft. Ugh, yeah. So it's better to just have it be a terrible first draft and then remove all the terribleness. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, you know, even after I wrote the book, there were a couple of things that I realized, Oh, I wished I had done this or I wished I had done that. It's, you know, you're always going to find something. And so if you keep waiting for perfection, you'll probably never launch. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit now, like what's it, it's about. So it's called the money nerve. And then the subtitle is navigating the emotions of money. 
Um, so yeah, what's it, uh, what's it about? Yeah. So basically I wrote this book for people to start to explore their money beliefs and money blocks and life choice, because what I realized was that in the business world, a lot of people think everything is just very black and white. Um, you sell lots of product, you make some money, you pay your taxes and it's just straightforward. But what I was finding was that people were actually doing the exact opposite of what I would tell people um, and do things that didn't serve them. And then also looking at my own life, I was a CPA, uh, had a lot of debt, uh, people that were like theoretically below me on the hierarchy of the accounting firm that I worked at were all like buying houses and taking big vacations. And I was just constantly uh, monitoring my debt. And so I thought, wait, something's wrong here. I'm making more money than these other people and I don't have my stuff together. So sort of like looking at my own personal journey and, and talking with so many of my clients, I just started, and I also have a background in, um, in uh, somatic therapy, um, which is basically body-based therapy. And so I had a psychology sort of sub background and started putting it all together and, and worked on this book. Gotcha. So it's kind of like, um, you say, kind of like a new approach. So instead of it just kind of being all about the numbers, if you will, you're more consulting people on their emotional state towards money and then building the plan after that's been kind of, I guess, dealt with. Yeah, because like a lot of people are really actually afraid of success. So when they start actually having success, they start sabotaging it. Or uh, people will tell me all the time, I want to be so rich. And then I'll say, what do you think about rich people? Rich people suck. Rich people are evil. And so they've got these two competing ideas of I want to be rich and rich, rich people are evil. Um, and so they self-sabotage mm -hmm. often. So now I guess uh, I'll ask you one of these. So like what, what is, how do you view like a healthy relationship with money? Like what is, I guess, what does that look like? Well, I think for me, it's being able to look and say what I have right now is awesome. Like I'm grateful for what I do have. And certainly there might be things that I want, um, but can I even appreciate what I have in the moment? So I was socialized that I was only as good as my accomplishments. So I had to make sure I hit all the marks, you know, take fantastic trips, uh, buy a house, uh, have a flashy car. And like, that was really important. And then I had a shift when I took a trip over to Africa and people were very happy and they were making a hundred dollars a year. And I was like, what's wrong with these people? And yeah. it took me doing some, readjusting my mindset about actually coming from a place of gratitude and actually appreciating what I do have instead of being upset about what I don't have. Got it. Tell us where in Africa did you go? Tell us a little more about that. Um, so I've been to a few places. I uh, started off my first trip was Tanzania, uh, Kenya, Egypt. And that was where I first fell in love with Africa and discovered that they had a different mindset. Um, a couple of years ago, I went back to Zimbabwe and worked at a rhino sanctuary um, for three weeks. And again, same experience. People were, you know, living in what we would consider poverty and willing to give me the shirt off their back. Yeah. And it's such a different mindset. So um, 
I because I know you have a lot of other like wild adventures I want to get into. But, uh, for um, on the tax side, just because you've done a lot of um, a lot of taxes for people, is yep. there a common mistake that you that you've come across that you see that like and maybe for let's say for small business owners, entrepreneurs are mostly what our listeners are. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake people make is that they assume that they know, and so they won't give me information. And so uh, I'll be talking to somebody and I'll start saying, well, didn't you have any of this? Or did you have any uh, advertising? Or did you do anything on the web? Or did you, oh, I didn't think that was deductible because my friend said, and so what I find is a lot of people, they don't want to be embarrassed that they don't know. And so I have to end up excavating information from my clients because they make a lot of assumptions and don't check it out. Got it. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good to know. Um, so how did you get into climbing these crazy mountains? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, again, going back to, I have to be productive when I do things, I couldn't just go take a vacation. Um, and so one of my first vacations overseas, a friend of mine said, Hey, you want to go run a marathon with me over in Greece? And initially I said, well, I can't travel to other countries because you have to be rich and I'm not rich. And they were like, who told you that you idiot? Let's go run a marathon. And so I went and ran the marathon. It was quite, uh, cathartic. And I, from there, I met this woman and we started traveling and hiking and she's like, let's go to Kilimanjaro. And then from there we went to Mount Everest base camp. And then I started doing the Colorado, uh, 16ers and, just sort of got into it. It's a nice place to clear the air. So, so I'm assuming like, yeah, to you, uh, maybe you don't, you don't relax much. Is that, uh, <laughs> that's probably a fair statement. I'm working on it. Okay. I got you. Working well, on it. It's, uh, those are healthy vacations right there. Which, no. um, which one is higher Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest? So Mount Everest is the highest mountain. Um, it's like, uh, I think at the peak, it's 31,000 okay. feet. Um, Kilimanjaro is like 19. Base yeah. camp is about the same height as Kilimanjaro. So uh, I hiked about the same height on both of them. Was it, I'm assuming, you know, in some cases it was difficult, but did you have any like sickness or anything? Or was it a pretty kind of smooth process? Just, you know, obviously difficult in the sense of climbing a mountain. Um, well, I got sick both times. Uh, the first time at Kilimanjaro, yeah. um, I did get the altitude sickness uh, towards the very top. And uh, basically, everything's in slow motion. So you can see that you're about to fall and your mind says, oh, I'm about to fall. I'm <laughs> falling. I wish I could stop. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> it's very, uh, it's very surreal. And when I went to Nepal, uh, the first time we were uh, hiking, we had this like crazy guide who was taking away everybody's diamox, which helps you uh, deal with the altitude sickness. And so my friend and I, we hid all of our diamox um, because he had taken it from everybody because he only had diamox free hikers. And we started getting up there pretty high. And I started getting sick and I was thinking, yeah, I just spent $5,000 getting over here. There's no way I'm not going to the top <laughs> and uh, I'm going to get my money's worth. And uh, so I started popping the pills and was able to acclimate and, and make it. But 
yeah, it was a, it's not a fun feeling. People die from that yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, that's what I've, yeah, that's what I've heard. It can be a little dangerous. What, so wait, what actually like happens? Like what's the, you know, like the science behind it? Well, so basically it's like when you dive really deep and then you come up really fast, you basically implode from the inside. Oh, wow. Okay. So you start internally bleeding and your, uh, your lungs collapse. It's supposedly really fun. <laughs> somehow those pills they counteract it i guess huh? yeah i mean you have to be careful because the pills can uh, hide the symptoms so you still have to be careful um i mean the biggest thing too i, I like these crazy things uh, you have to when you're at high altitude you got to make sure you're going to the bathroom and uh so the second time I was in Nepal, I kept saying to everybody, did everybody poop today? Did everybody poop? They're like, God, you're weird. And I'm like, guys, you got to poop. You got to keep the system going. And one of the women just was embarrassed. So she didn't say anything. And she actually got constipated and she bloated up so much that she almost actually died. She started to go into a coma and we had to rush her down the hill and uh, the mountain and um, we got her to the hospital. But like something simple as just going to the bathroom every day. Like if you're not doing that, you can die. So you just have to be really careful up there. Yeah. That's what, that's no joke. dude. It's, it's <laughs> not a joke. <laughs> no, like, yeah, go to the bathroom. <laughs> go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, so I know another thing you like to do, you're, you do stand up comedy as well, right? That is correct. So yeah. When, when and, and why, I guess, did you get into that? So, you know, I'd always, uh, I guess people always thought I was funny uh, at a certain level. And uh, I'd gotten into improv and I was at this place called Acme Comedy Theater and I was in this show and I'd been wanting to do stand-up, but initially that seemed a little scary. And then I got into stand-up and um, went well uh, for a while. So that was good. Um, I didn't bomb early on, which was good and bad because then when I finally bombed, it was quite painful. But uh, that, so I, I, I got into comedy because it was a great place to be able to say what I was thinking and then just say, oh, I was kidding. So I could be, I could be angry or I could be cruel. Um, I could be sarcastic. And in real life, I, I seem a little bit more, uh, or at the time, I seemed a bit more shy and quiet. Um, so then I could go, just kidding, because people wouldn't believe that I could have such <laughs> nasty things to say because I was such a polite guy. And uh, so it was therapy. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's somewhat controversial, but that's, that's what I like about Louis C.K. a lot. Yeah. You know, just, uh, I don't know. Some of the stuff he says, I'm like, I can't believe he said <laughs> No, well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, comedy is saying what everybody else is thinking, but it's too polite to say. Because um, everybody's thinking it. That's why people are laughing. Um, yeah. We all judge other people. Uh, we're all trying to like get ahead. We're all tr like, well, nobody's, nobody's naming it. And that's what I think comics do is we name the truth of the situation. Yeah, I agree. And what, what was it like when you bombed? What was that experience like? Uh, well, yeah, that was horrible. So the first time I bombed, I'd been doing it for a couple of years and everywhere I went, it was great. I had a couple of videos and people thought I was funny. And I got in this competition and they told me I had to do really clean comedy. And it ended up being at a casino. Um, and everybody was dirty, dirty, dirty. I was the last comic. I had to follow three comics that were just 
and I had all my Disney material and this audience hated my guts. And so it was only like four minutes, but it felt like six hours. Yeah. Um, and after that, I couldn't tell a joke to save my life. And there was this one woman, every time she'd see me at a show or at a, uh, at a TV booking or something, she'd say, you must have a really good video because uh, I remember that night you bombed. And I was like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> so what, did it kind of scar you for a little bit? It did scar me for a little bit. Uh, yeah, it took about six months. Uh, every time I'd get up at any state, Mike, I'd get up and talk and people would just go, yeah, no. Oh, damn, that is rough. Yeah, <laughs> but you just keep doing it and you pray that one day, and then one day I was at a coffee shop yeah. with like seven people and people, I could have recited the alphabet and people are like, you're brilliant. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm back. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so then is that, I'm assuming that that's kind of the natural progression to how you became the CFO of the comedy stores. So how did that work itself out? Well, yeah. So what happened there was I had a couple of friends at the comedy store and I was running a room at the comedy store. I had a, I had a show on Thursday nights and the comedy store was having some financial issues. They hadn't paid their payroll taxes and some stuff. And uh, I got a call from Mitzi and she's like, this is Mitzi Shore. And Vicky told me you're a comic and a CPA. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. She's like, well, we need you at the store. So get down here. I'm like, okay. So yeah, I, initially it was because all my friends were comics and I wanted to make sure we all had a stage to perform on. And the comedy store was the best place in yeah. my mind. And um, yeah, so I sort of jumped in and started really trying to help them get back on track. And, uh, uh, and here I am. Got it. Okay. And yeah, I'm curious, I've actually, I've never been there, but you know, me and you were talking before we, we uh, hopped on here. I, I watched Joe Rogan a lot and he talks about it. Like, I guess I'm curious, like, what is it about the place that makes it so special? Is it just that, like, that's where all the comics just have always gone? Yeah, well, I, so the way that it originally got so big was um, the Tonight Show moved from New York to L.A., and with Johnny Carson, and he was really into comics. And so when, when Mitzi and Sammy opened the club, they had J.J. Uh, Walker from um, some TV show from the 70s that I can't remember. And uh, <laughs> then uh, along came Robin Williams and Billy Crystal and Jay Leno and uh, Richard Pryor. And so all of these people were just hanging out at the store because they were trying to get on The Tonight Show. Oh, yeah. And and it was really the only club in town because the improv was still in New York. Got it. Okay. And, and then Bud Friedman sort of lost his New York club in a divorce and he moved to LA and started the improv in LA. And so then they started competing against each other. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, uh, Sandra Bernhardt, Roseanne, Whoopi Goldberg, um, George Carlin, Gallagher, uh, uh Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, like yeah. the names, the list goes on and on. And so it's just become the place uh, to go. And I think the other thing is the comedy store has three rooms, whereas mm -hmm. most clubs just have one. So we have the belly room, the original room and the main room, and you get three different experiences. Uh, so you get to work it out. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you go, do you go pretty often to like, is that where you like test material? Well, nowadays, because I'm also the CFO, uh, 
it's hard to go up there and just do comedy because as soon as I get off stage, what would happen is, hey, Bob, there's an insurance guy downstairs. Or, hey, can you check on my paycheck? And <laughs> I was like, I just wanted to be a comic tonight. I don't really want to be an accountant. Yeah. And uh, so I usually go down to La Jolla. We have a club down there. And then I just, and then I just do like coffee houses and places um, and friends of mine uh, book me in clubs uh, on the road and stuff. So I, j I'd love to be able to do the comedy store more often, but I think it, it just gets blurry with me being the CFO. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, I actually lived in, um, in Encinitas for a few years. So I'm really familiar with uh, La Jolla. Oh yeah. That's a great club. It's yeah. a great club. Um. Well, very, very cool, man. I guess I want to, you know, we can, I, I would like to dive a little bit more into the, I, I guess in your book, is there any, any parts that you want to highlight as far as like, I guess, financial literacy? Because I think our audience would be pretty interested in, um, in that. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is to be aware that there's emotions involved in your decision-making. Uh, yeah. When I first worked with my editor, she just said, you know, it, it's, it's great that you have this idea, Bob, but like it doesn't apply to everybody because I don't have any emotions when I make financial decisions. And I said, oh, okay. Um, well, let me ask you this. When you go out to lunch with your dad, who pays? She said, oh, well, he does because I'm his princess. And I said, okay, well, who, go, <laughs> who pays for lunch when you go out with your mom? She's like, oh, well, I do because my mom was so wronged by my dad and I feel bad for her. And then I said, okay, well, who pays for lunch when you go out with your sister? And she goes, oh, no, we split it because we're equal. Oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> so, like, uh, even in something like splitting the bill, uh, especially with creative types, a few people run to the restroom or leave early, <laughs> um, right? Because there are these things that we make a judgment. We're, you know, I didn't, if I'm splitting the bill and I didn't drink the, the wine and I didn't have dessert, I just want to pay for the salad or maybe I don't want anybody to think I'm cheap. So I pay for everything. Uh, so it's just, it's an interesting dynamic that most people are not a real aware of when they're making financial decisions. I think that's the biggest thing is there. It's like, you know, there's like problems that we're aware of and we still sometimes decide to ignore them, but yeah. that's something that I don't even think most people are even aware of. So that's pretty big, you know? Yeah, and I do, I do these live workshops with people. Um, some of them are a weekend workshop. Some are like a 12-week workshop. And we just start exploring all these things. And like I work with a lot of companies where they're getting ready to start up and go ask for investment money. And so I had a – we did a difficult conversation process where I had everybody pitch their, their, to their investors. And yeah. Not a single person actually, when they were given the space, knew actually what to say. They were like, uh, 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 uh. oh, <laughs> I guess I have to learn how to present <laughs> if I want investors to give me money. So even something simple like that, uh, they didn't even really know what to ask for. I got you. Um, yeah, no, I think it's really important, man. I, I, this is just a side note. I wanted to let you know. I, like, I love simplicity, and I was yeah. just looking at your cover as we're talking. And dude, it is awesome, man. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, Thanks. Yeah, it's right up my alley. Um, so so look, man, I uh, I really enjoyed having you on. I want if 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 there's anything else you want to share, the floor is yours. Um, and then you know, tell people where they can get the book, your website, and any like social media, anywhere else people can follow or find you. Yeah, well, I would just say um, start looking at your 
your belief system around money um, and come from a place of gratitude because we all have a lot more. I think this like COVID-19 has given people hopefully some perspective of, oh, I actually can get by without spending any money um, being locked away. Um, and what's value, what's valuable, what's important, what's, what's important in my life. So I, I think that's something for people to look at. Um, I would definitely love people to check out uh, the moneynerve.com website. We just launched a new online course. It's a 12 week course that walks you through all the breakdowns of gender beliefs and uh, relationships with mom and dad, uh, fears, all that kind of stuff. And we actually get into some how to budget, some practical stuff as well. Um, so that's uh, the, the course to financial freedom, which is on the Money Nerve website. Uh, the book you can get at Amazon. Um, and actually, um, I'll, I'll throw this out. If it's not okay, you can always edit it out, but we'd be happy to give a 25% discount uh, to anybody listening on this podcast and hears about it. They could just use the code AU25. Awesome. Uh, and uh, be happy to do that. But yeah, we just want to get those conversations started about money and let people know they're not alone. Yeah, of course, man. I think, I, I hope that's what this COVID-19 thing has done for everybody too. For me, it really put in perspective, like, you know, just square one, all my family right now is healthy. So yep. look, what's better than that at the end of the day? Exactly. Uh, exactly. So I think if there's any positive that's come of it, I think it's, it kind of took us all out of the grind and made us realize like, okay, like, okay. Yeah. The economy's kind of taking a pause for a little bit, but at the same token, um, we're now kind of realizing what we're most grateful for. And, you know, that's kind of the basics. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, and I don't know if I'm the only one, but like when everybody was like, well, we have to slow down. And I was like, great, I get to slow down. But what I realized my internal uh, compass is the one that's keeping me going 500 miles an hour. It's not the rest of the world. I'm still like, what do I do? What do I do? Um, so it's, <laughs> so I'm learning to uh, go slower. So that's actually been nice for me too. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm the same way. And the only thing for me that's been happening is that I, I definitely like some separation between my house and my office. Yeah. Not being able to go into my office and having to work from home as everybody that's what's interesting right people that work in corporate they're probably like this is a luxury i get to work at home and i'm like I, i'm just not as productive at home it's just the way it is <laughs> yeah absolutely i agree i like having separation yeah um but yeah man so yeah thanks again and so again the book's the money nerve and then the uh website's the money nerve.com right absolutely perfect man thank you again for coming on the show hey thanks a lot tyler i appreciate it Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com, your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact.